0: You're listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. You'll hear from Prop Tech founders, investors, and industry veterans on how they're using tech to change the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. This isn't just another podcast about making money in real estate. This is about how we live. In each episode, you'll hear about the market opportunities and trends driving the industry forward. Tech Nest is proudly produced by Finn Ledger in partnership with HW Media. And now, your host, Nate Smoyer. Hey, welcome back to another exciting episode of Tech Nest, the PropTech Podcast. I've got an exciting episode here for you. We've got two guests, uh, and we're going to be talking from different uh, perspectives on this. The first guest here is Brad Wright. Uh, Brad Wright runs a company called Chunker. It's a marketplace for listing and procuring short-term warehousing space. Simply put, if you imagine the Airbnb of warehousing, that's what Brad is building. And by the way, Chunker's such a cool name. I love the branding. I can never get over it. On the other side, we're gonna be talking with Peter Lewis. He's president of Wharton Equity Partners. They're based out of New York City. Now, he's been in this game for some time now. 30 years experience in multifamily, mixed use, and most recently, industrial sectors. Now, while Peter is also an investor in tech that is impacting the industrial warehousing and supply chain, landscape today he's going to be bringing that perspective of the operator investor and we're going to get into all kinds of different topics here a little bit in the ai what is micro fulfillment and the future of industrial warehousing and where the market really needs to shift to meet the demands and what the next market really will be Uh, peter kind of talks a little bit about that and uh, many of you have heard the phrasing you know last mile kind of uh, idea of this last mile of shipping And that's not really just the thing that people are aspiring to create or achieve anymore. It is happening and we're going even further in. we're reducing that mile to maybe half mile, quarter mile. So anyway, uh, I'm gonna let Peter and Brad give you guys all the inside scoops on that. So let's go.
1: Well, hey, Brad and Peter, welcome to the show. Good evening or afternoon, depending upon where you are. Well, yeah,
2: good afternoon in California right now, so.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm excited for this episode, Uh, you know, uh, I I shared with Brad before the show, and anyone who's talked to me in PropTech already knows I'm a fan of Chunker, so right off the bat, I'm I'm excited for this, but warehousing is this thing that I want to get into. I've got a little bit of storage, but I can't tell you about warehousing, so I think this is going to be a really exciting show because... You guys know the warehousing business, you know what's happening, you've been in it, and you guys are setting some of the trends. So I'm excited for that. So to to get things started right, let's do some intros. Uh, Peter, I'll kick it to you first, and then Brad, you please let everyone know who you are and what you do.
1: So my name is Peter Lewis, I'm the founder and chairman of Wharton Equity Partners based in New York. We are a real estate investment firm primarily, we have a venture capital arm as well. I founded the firm, um, 35 years ago, which is hard to believe. Uh, and we have invested across all the real estate assets um, during my tenure. Um, the, However, I will say that uh, the industrial real estate business is the most exciting opportunity of my career. And this is having done hotels, office buildings, multifamily. Uh, and we are uh, very excited about talking about it tonight. And, and kind of the the convergence, if you will, of technology and real estate is occurring in industrial. And it's really this this crossing over is so fascinating. And it'll be interesting to, to dig in a little bit on this.
2: All right. And Brad? So I'm Brad Wright, the, the founder of Chunker. And Chunker has created an Airbnb style marketplace for warehouses so that anytime anybody has any space available, even a partial warehouse, uh, we can find demand for that short term demand and bring it in and generate uh, really extra revenue for them that they wouldn't have had otherwise. And in the end, all the revenue we generate is, is pure profit because all the expenses are sunk. Uh, they would have had to pay anyway.
0: All right. So now, both intros. Different angles here, but uh, I think uh, clearly a lot of excitement in warehousing. So I'll just kick off with kind of a broad question here. What in the world is happening in warehousing that is making this space exciting to be in, to invest in, and grow?
1: Well, I'll start off and then Brad can jump in quickly, You know, but it, there's only one word. It's called e-commerce. I mean, there's been no other force in my career that I've seen affect a real estate asset class like e-commerce has. Uh, and the world was not really ready for this. COVID obviously expedited it, uh, but but this force is just beginning. And so the whole supply chain is changing about getting goods into people's hands faster and faster. Uh, And as we move from, everyone says brick and mortar to kind of online. Uh, And so we're still very early in this, this game. And the other thing that you're starting to see more and more of coming out of COVID is the emergence of what I'll call the middle market companies starting to really understand the need to have an e-commerce presence um, you read about Amazon and all the big guys in the press but the real game ahead is going to be those guys building out their infrastructure around uh, their their e-commerce business
2: yeah and, and I'll just add to that is it not only is it e-commerce it's just demand for everything is increasing and as people sit around and maybe it was accelerated by covid you know he, you, you didn't realize that your couch wasn't really, your sofa really wasn't up to speed. And all of a sudden you're there every minute of every day and you think, wow, I need a new sofa or wow, I should paint my house or it'd be really great to have some new pots and pans because now I have to cook all the time. And so the the demand for everything is just skyrocketed. And so that coupled with just the, the move from a standard retail storefront to really the, where, the the retail of the future, which is a warehouse, it's just accelerated demand on really on every all fronts.
0: Now, Brad, we had a chance to catch up a little bit before the show. And, uh, I think I jokingly said something along the lines of what the hell's going on at the ports and how do we fix this? But maybe, maybe we can touch on that. Like in all seriousness, what is going on at the ports and why is everything full? Is it, is, is it all e-commerce is everything? Is this a COVID problem that will eventually be fixed?
2: uh well it's, it's definitely exacerbated by covid and and what, really what happened is you know when covid hit all this all the container ships were here and they unloaded all their containers and they never took anything back and so right now a fundamental uh problem at the port is that there's so many containers mostly empty not all mo- not mostly empty but there's so many empty ones there, i read yesterday 120,000 empty containers just at long beach and la it's preventing all the movement. There's a hundred ships with 600,000 containers right off the coast of California that need to be unloaded, but there's no space to unload them. So ultimately the answer is to find more space really quickly and clear those ports out so that they can unload the ships that are there and get things moving. And I mean, that's gonna take a while, but it'll eventually right itself. But COVID, COVID was a big contributor to the current supply chain problems.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I totally can understand that. I, I had no idea uh, that, that there was uh, all these empty containers. Uh, as far as I can see, the price of a container has also gone up with everything else, even uh, even though it sounds like there's quite a surplus of them yet. Uh, sit- well,
2: well there, there's a surplus, but they're in the wrong place. See, that's that's part of the problem is that for every 100 containers that come to the U.S., we only ship 50 full ones back. And so the empty ones continue to accumulate here, and there's a massive shortage in China of empty containers so anyway you know because chunker is a short-term storage we have a ton of extra space in southern california and then one of the reasons i'm here is because we're getting geared up to store all those empty containers on all of the lots and areas that we have around the ports
0: interesting now i'll uh peter i want to i want to go back to you here for a little bit so yeah i mean uh, you've been in the space and uh you've been a part of uh several different key investments in the warehousing space so I want to touch on that for a minute. What are some of the investments that you've been a part of in, in the warehousing space? And what are the trends that you're seeing that, you know, those companies are, you know, they're, you know, they're meeting in the market or what, what the market is saying, hey, we need more of this. And those companies are handling that demand.
1: Right. Well, I'll give you I'll give you an example of a deal we did, which kind of epitomizes what's happening out there. We bought a warehouse in South Philadelphia just a couple of years ago that was a former subway repair facility. So there was rail lines running through the middle of the building. It was completely in disrepair. It was leaking. It, yeah, it was abandoned effectively by the owner, um, and the the local investment community all passed on buying this building. And some naive New Yorkers like us came down there, walked through the building, looked at Google Earth, and said, "Hmm." This property sits next to 4 million people. It's by the port. It's by the airport. It's by two major interstate highways. I said, this is a last mile building. Now, the word last mile is being thrown around liberally right now. Uh, but, you know, even a few years back, it was still a little bit mysterious. Uh, this was a true last mile facility. So we, we kind of took a deep breath and went ahead and purchased the building. And we wound up renovating it, putting the roofs and do, you know, pulled the rail lines out. And Amazon came and took the whole building. Two hundred eighty thousand feet, and they're using it strictly for last mile. There's no racking in that building. It's it's all the inside of the building. They're using half of it for sprinter vans. So they're actually they're actually thinking ahead, and they're putting electric charging stations inside this facility for electric sprinter vans that are not even built yet. Uh, and, and so in the interim, they used combustion engine cars outside, but, but the, the, kind of the way it works here is that the drivers get there in the morning, their cars are packed up, they're out in the road getting rid of the goods. Uh, so this is a really classic example of, of a dynamic change uh, as we move what I'll call from the analog world to the digital world. The, the guys who were looking at it, the local guys were analog thinkers. You know, I'm not saying we're so smart, but we're looking at the world a little differently and as a digital thinker. So I still think we're early in this transition uh, and it's not only the looking at buildings this way, it's also looking at areas this way. So what, we, what may have been formerly abandoned cities that like, like a Bridgeport, um, like a Waterbury on the East Coast, some of these markets that were formerly um, manufacturing towns, for example, they're sitting on top of major highways. And so if you look through the lens of an analog thinker, you're going to say, oh, why would you want to go there? It's, it's downtrodden, et cetera. If you're looking through the lens of a digital thinker, you're saying, oh, my God, look at the population around here and look at the the inter, you know, look at the highway network. So um, for us, uh, this is why it's, it's an interesting game right now, because there's, there's still this world of transition from one to the other. And that's where opportunity occurs. Uh, and you're not seeing this as much in the other asset classes because they're more mature. And, and and so the arbitrage, the opportunity around taking advantage of this change, uh, in my opinion, doesn't exist in any of the other asset classes today.
0: I appreciate that perspective. And shout out to Philly. You didn't know this, but I was born and raised outside of Philly. So I'm an East Coast native, just trying to get by, and not making any Midwestern uh, people upset because sometimes I say how it is. Um, I want to ask you about micro-fulfillment. How does that play into this, and how popular has that become?
1: Well, I just spoke, so I'll speak after Brad, so I'll give him a chance to talk if you'd like.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, micro-fulfillment is obviously one of those things that that – they want like in 15 minutes, like GoPuff and, and Reef and some of those big companies like that. You know, they their promise is they're going to deliver in 15 minutes. Well, that's super hard, right? And so the way you do that is you have to be really close to the customer and you've got to stage your things out there. So um, for us, it's a good use case, too, because a lot of times they'll want to try a new market or try an area. And so they can do a chunker warehouse for six months while they look for a more permanent solution if that's where they decide to set up.
0: Yeah, because with, with with you guys, right? So, like, if GoPuff wanted to check, you know, try a new market, they could take out, you know, half the warehouse. They don't even have to take the whole warehouse, right? And then they can do a, a short term lease versus, you know, something standard like, you know, five, ten years or something like that.
2: Yeah, no, it's a they they can choose any part of the building, you know, five thousand, ten thousand, fifteen, whatever's available. They can take the whole thing, half the thing. Um, and it's exactly that. It's it, it's really exactly like Airbnb. They can do a month at a time. We've done deals for a week at a time. I mean, they're a little more rare, but it's it's more of a month at a time. Or they might say oh, we we want to try it for six months, and they can do six months. If there's no lease, no long term obligation, no security deposits. They just move in, do their thing, move out if they want to.
0: So on this trend of micro fulfillment, then is it are they the only ones using uh, short term warehousing or? You know, maybe paint a picture of what that customer looks like. Uh, you know, obviously it sounds like e-comm is, is part of this, but who else is, is taking advantage of that sort of flexibility?
2: You know, we have two primary use cases. The first is uh, overflow storage, and that can be anybody from Walmart on down. You know, it's it just whoever needs extra space for a little t- for a period of time. And they know it's a short term need and they know they don't need to go do a five year lease to solve this problem. And the other uh, really popular use case is construction. And construction takes multiple forms, like uh, Dish Network is a perfect example. Uh, They're doing 5G rollouts throughout the whole country. Well, they need a warehouse for six months to be able to ship their electronics to and their antennas and things like that while they go out and build their their infrastructure. But then they're done, and they want to move on to the next city. So, you know, it, it really, anybody who needs a warehouse for any reason is ultimately gonna need some short-term space or have short-term space. You know, a lot of our customers are both suppliers and users of short-term space all at the same time.
1: Nate, I wanted to just chat one second. I come from a different angle on the micro-fulfillment. So we have been studying this space uh, very closely because we think it's a big opportunity in the future. And actually, we just made an investment through our venture arm, Wharton Equity Ventures, in a company called Fabric, which is a company that automates micro fulfillment centers. So we believe in the future that many of these properties are going to be fully automated. Matter of fact, robotics I think is going to take over uh, in in a lot of warehouses in the future, and that's driven by the fact that it's faster throughput, and also obviously there's issues today with labor. So. Uh, we, we made uh, an investment in the series C round of, of this company they they recently signed a deal with instacart uh, where they're going national um, um, and um, helping instacart build out their grocery business one of the issues as you know today with instacart and, and these other delivery guys is that they're they're competing in the retail environment um, and it's causing a unfavorable experience for the for the you know for the t- customers you know like you have guys kind of elbowing uh, on, mature ladies in the head for a tomato. Uh, and so you're gonna see a continued separation of what we'll call dark grocery, uh, kind of like the GoPuff model where there's only outgoing. Uh, we just we just believe in the fact that the, the mechanism to do this will probably be mostly automated, uh, you know, until obviously you're gonna need human beings to take it out the door, right now at least, um, you know, to get it to the end user.
2: I, I agree with that 100%. I mean, really where we fit into that kind of spectrum, is when they're doing their market testing and market analysis and trying to decide where to be. And they might want to get out into a market first, you know, before they get a long-term facility that takes a little bit of time to automate and get all that stuff set up. So we're kind of that leading edge and then they work their way back into a a more kind of permanent facility. And
1: by the way, Brad, you know, some of these properties, once they're set up, they're very easy to have multi tenants inside these, these warehouses. You know, because you can actually even have two different companies' goods in one bin, uh, because the way the you know the systems work, it, you know, what you're picking and packing, it could be two different products. Um, it, it's all computerized and understanding where it is in the warehouse, but it could be conducive to short-term kind of um, seasonal kind of goods. Uh, you know, that maybe um, whoever whoever needs extra space for. So I think it's going to be an interesting possibility for your business where these warehouses actually could be utilized. Um, and, and in some ways, they're, they're, it's even easier because you're not getting involved with devising rising malls and other stuff, you know? So offline, you and I should yeah. chat.
2: No, I'd love to. No, I've I've heard of Fabric before. I think it's a super cool idea, actually.
1: Look at that, Nate. You, you created a marriage tonight.
0: I love it. We're, we're adding, you know, I'm, I'm going to go on the VC brags here. I'm just adding value to you guys. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you both mentioned GoPuff because as a marketing guy, I just love the commercials and I got their little jingle stuck in my head. It's going to be sad, though, because by the time this episode launches, I'll be living in South Dakota where we're moving and there is no GoPuff uh, where I'm headed. But uh, I can hope for that last mile. Eventually, it's going to make its way to the Black Hills. So we'll look forward to that.
2: They're, Peter, they're in the Black Hills, it's the last 10 miles.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a, lo- a little <laughs> bit further.
1: Amazon is actually testing a um, new building, which will be a smaller, 75,000 square foot uh, footprint in these more rural markets, where they're, they're gonna do six hour delivery. Uh, and and it, you know what ultimately is gonna happen with Amazon is they are gonna be able to deliver throughout the country, definitely everything within a day. Uh, and, and, and generally speaking, everything within hours. And that will be even the, into the remote locations. That's going to take them years to build out, but that's their aspirations and they will do it. Yeah.
0: yeah now you, you guys kind of touched on a little bit about some of the technology that's making this possible. Obviously, like there's software systems to communicate, go get this product that needs to get here. Right. Timing of trucks and and delivery maps helps with all that. Uh, when it comes to actual warehouses and some of the technology that's going into making them more usable, right? You know, there's making payments online and there's, you know, automated doors, but really what's the what's the technology that's driving some of the innovation that makes some of this, you know, complicated logistics possible? Uh, and is it going to be just Amazon has access to this or is there stuff accessible to other companies that aren't quite Amazon to automate. Well, I,
1: I mean, I think Brad's company is a great example of kind of how technology uh, is, is kind of permeating the space. I mean, the ability to find kind of random spaces in areas that you wouldn't otherwise know about is all technologically driven. I mean, Brad can speak much more about it and, you know, I'd be very curious to hear his thoughts, but that's one great example of how he's ringing out, he's, he's creating more efficiencies in the marketplace through his technology.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, these assets cause, they're so capital intensive. Nobody can afford to actually have them sit there empty. You know, and so that's, that's the part we bring. But, you know, there's a big push. I'll just say this um, that in the market for e commerce companies to find the technology for shipping and other parts of logistics to compete with Amazon. So, Amazon's creating a whole competitive ecosystem with themselves of people who don't want to use them, meaning the e commerce brands, because using all their technology and kind of tapping into that is also enormously expensive. You know, Amazon makes sure they get paid. And so there's lots of alternatives coming up to, uh, to them as well. So it won't be just Amazon, I guess, is my point.
1: Big opportunity.
0: Now, invariably what's going to happen is uh, when when we conclude this recording, I'm going to go to LoopNet and I'm going to be trying to find a last mile warehouse because you guys have got me amped up, right? And I, I've seen this happen. In, uh, this has been happening in the self-storage industry, Right. Self storage is a hot topic right now. Super hot for a lot of even smaller investors. I picked up my own facility about a year ago. I'm curious, do you guys see warehousing going similar trends? As there's warehouses in these small rural towns, and uh, you know, being in the Midwest and road tripping, I see them all over the place. Are, are you know smaller or you know maybe non institutional investors going to be looking to grab up these warehouses as, you know, it becomes more and more clear that last mile and its importance.
1: Brad, do you want to take it? (laughs)
2: Um, I don't know, you know, a lot of warehouses are owned by individuals right now anyway. The vast majority, you know, are are owned by smaller individuals. Obviously there's huge REITs and there's uh, funds and things like that, but the vast majority are still owned by individuals who might own one or two warehouses. so ultimately, those will probably get snapped up by bigger people and redeveloped or something like that. But uh, they're already owned, you know, by those private people.
1: We're buying a lot of warehouses uh, on the East Coast. We particularly like uh, South Jersey, Philadelphia market, and then up towards Boston. Uh, and and some of the, the places that we're finding a lot of luck right now is with east Eastbacks, where companies are um, desirous of kind of taking advantage of the market but they want to stay put and they also frees up some cash for them. I think you'll see more of a trend along those lines. Again, more, you'll see it in the big companies, but you're seeing it more and more even in the smaller companies. So the, I think it's the, I, I continue to kind of harp on this, but the emergence of the middle market is the next big opportunity. Uh, it's in, as far as their leasing um, and also, you know, the, the kind of the pace of, of change that's going to occur with, with um, a- acquisitions and dispositions in that space. So uh, it's very hard to compete today, as you guys know, with the Blackstones of the world uh, who are buying huge buildings and paying ridiculous numbers. And there's plenty of them out there. They're all sitting with a lot of capital. And what they're doing is they're playing a financial engineering game. So they're buying these properties at a sub 4% cap, and they're putting on 2.5% debt because that's what they can, they can get debt for. And they're making you know what's called a cash-on-cash return of 6 7% on their money. But it's really a financial play. Uh, and, and I'm not sure how long that lasts. If Obviously, if rates rise, that game is over. What we try to do is we try to find properties that make sense today on their own and, and that are good assets where it's not the maneuvering of capital and, and playing with the capital stack that makes the deal work. It's actually, you know, we're buying the building, quote unquote, below replacement cost. Um, you know what I mean? Like someone else comes in down the street and builds a brand new building. You always want to try to be um, cheaper than that guy. Uh, so if you're higher than replacement costs and and a new building comes on the market, who's going to get the tenant? So you have to be really careful about um, that that you know that disparity. So, um, but the other thing I would say is when you, particularly when you get into the, some of the smaller, more urban buildings, and I think Brad will understand what I'm talking about here is. They're hard buildings to figure out. This is multifamily, which we've owned a lot of. You do the kitchens, the bathrooms, the hallways, the common areas. You kind of you can go into an asset and figure it out. Industrial, you may have environmental problems, parking problems, you have roof problems. You have you know there's so many things that go on in this this kind of game that if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to get hurt. Uh, and so it's I think it's a more complicated asset class to own in, and particularly the urban kind of environment. Maybe not as much, you know, a big building sitting in the middle of a field. It's not that hard to do. So um, so that's really, that's what makes it a little bit more interesting, I think, because it's it's not something which everyone can run into, although they're trying. They, they, they soon realize that, you know, unless you really understand the risks around this, uh, you you know, it's, it's a little daunting.
2: Yeah. and uh, What we've ultimately done, you know, if you saw our pitch deck, uh, the, the very first slide is we're going to be the largest warehouse company in the world without owning a single square foot. (laughs) So, you you know, we're a tool to help people fill their space and optimize their revenue while they're working on a different long-term plan. Sometimes, you know, our customers might have lost a big customer. So all of a sudden they have 10 or 20,000 square feet extra. Normally they would have to sit on that with chunker. they can fill it up. Sometimes in this market it's so hot, the landlord will force them basically to take more than they actually need. Because they don't, you, you know, there's all that FUD, you know, you, well, if you don't get it now, you're never getting it. Or I'm just not going to do that amount. I'm going to do it all because I can get the next guy down the road. But, uh, but the name of the game for most landlords anyway is to find the long-term tenant. Uh, well, that's not always that easy. And sometimes the building sits. And that's where Chunkers uh, fits in is that we say, well, why let it sit? When we're doing three, six, nine-month deals, we'll never get in the way of that long-term play. And so, you know, our, our game you know, is strictly technology, really, and strictly that marketplace that makes everybody more efficient. And a lot of times, you know, you talk about the urban space, a lot of our use cases, even with massive companies, like we've done two deals with Toyota in the last couple months, they might need 10,000 square feet or 15,000 square feet for this overflow scenario. Well, most landlords will never talk about that. You know, they want to do a hundred thousand or fifty. You know, some larger amount, and never for short term. So, you know, it's just that play to make all that more efficient, as the long term guys with the capital come in and and have these other you know, longer term plans. Really,
0: yeah yeah I, I i appreciate that I wanna, i'm gonna go ahead and change a little bit of direction here so one of the the topics that i see keep bubbling back up uh in the commercial real estate world is anything around climate uh you know i was at the Creed Tech event in new york city uh, a few months ago and this was a big topic a lot of discussion about carbon capture reducing carbon footprint and really any topic that relates to a building's impact on climate change is this also coming, and I imagine, is part of the industrial space right now. And, and if so, like, what are some of the trends you're seeing with warehousing as it relates to, you know, concern for issues related to climate change? Uh,
1: I, I, I don't, I don't think right now, frankly, um, unless the tenant is required to do it for some reason. If they're a major tenant like Walmart, you know, they may have certain, uh, you know, Amazon, uh, there may be driven by that. And so therefore the landlord has to deal with it. But as far as everyday kind of, you know, industrial, it hasn't kind of filtered down into that business yet. It will, but, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, you may start seeing lenders at some point kind of require it, you know, unless, unless there's pressure on the landlords from, from outside forces, I don't think industrial landlords are kind of unilaterally just going to be jumping and saying, I have a green building, come rent here. You know, I mean, I I just don't see that being a competitive advantage today. It's more so with office buildings, you know, and some and residential, perhaps. But I don't know if I've seen it yet. Brad, do you do you feel differently or what's your thought on this?
2: No, I, I think it's exactly that. Regulatory. Really, it's regulatory that's going to drive it. That's what drives residential. You know, there's tons of codes and requirements like that. There's more and more codes for office buildings, and there's certifications that make them easier to market, all the lead-type things that that go on there. But industrial's definitely left behind. And the the usage of the buildings is is a lot different anyway. It may not even lend itself to it. But for our short-term uses, I mean, it it doesn't impact us at all.
0: Yeah, appreciate that. You know, I genuinely have no idea – uh, <laughs> I'm trying to dig into it and learn uh, what really what's happening on that space and how it's going to impact uh, multiple different industries or, or verticals within uh, real estate. Uh, I'm going to shift gears here. This is. Uh,
1: Nate, uh, I will tell you one thing. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think. No, can you're see, good. Go for it. I think you have see more and more solar on the roofs. Uh, we're looking at mm-hmm. that. That's a lot of real estate up there that's untapped. And um, these buildings have nice big roofs and they're conducive to that. So that is definitely something we're changing, but that's, that's purely economically driven. You know what I mean? It's not like we're doing it because, oh my God, we'll save the planet. It's, you know, hey, look at this, we have an unfound asset up there. But, um, you know, and also what's happening, states are, are, are now offering, um, you know, whether there's credits or otherwise that are, that are kind of um, making it conducive to, to put solar on the roof. So that is an interesting play, um, you know, but again, it's probably based more out of greed than, uh, you know, helping the planet.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, if you got the real estate and it makes sense to, to put some solar panels up there, I mean, it, it kind of does make sense if it can uh, help out with the building at all. Uh, it's not such a bad thing. Uh, I want We'll shift gears here to one of my favorite parts of the show. Uh, so this is a segment we do with each guest. It's called For the Future where I get to ask you, and now it's two of you guys. Uh, I'll give you four questions, and you guys have to give me your best predictions uh, to those questions. Guys, you ready to play? Ready to go? (laughs) All All right, right. here we go. For the future, question number one. Um, And so this is for both of you guys. What does your companies look like one year from now?
1: I'll give it to Brad because he's really fast growing, so let him go first. (laughs)
2: <laughs> okay, we have warehouses in 45 states and about 25 million square feet. In a year from now, we'll have all 50 states and probably triple that amount. And, and probably we'll have expanded, uh, started to expand globally at that point.
1: Very interesting. So um, in a year from now, I think we'll be very, um, we're, we're, we're buying a site right now, which we're going to develop in, uh, in the Phoenix market. Uh, we really think that that whole Intermountain West area is fascinating as people flee California. Uh, so I, I, I'm, we're we're going to probably be deeply involved in that region, uh, and and also I think we'll we're going to be continuing to to buy up and down the East Coast. Uh, we're also buying a lot of land around the East Coast. We just under contract on a million square foot buildable site in northern Rhode Island, for example. Uh, so we're going to continue to push. But, and we also love uh, kind of the Florida, the central Florida market. Uh, so uh, we're looking for growth and density. That's going to be our continued push. Cool. Well,
2: Question before, number two. Before you go, you should at least consider Salt Lake City. Love
1: Salt Lake City. Just hard to get into.
0: So, sounds like Brad's got a, a, Brad knows somebody for you. <laughs> I know people. We're just making uh, deals here. I love this. It's good.
2: i need space i need lots of space in salt lake city we have we have so much demand there if i could get peter to come and get some warehouses there i'd fill them up myself
1: interesting
0: boom yeah will the industrial and warehousing space continue to heat up for the next five years flatten out or decline and why
1: um I'll take it first and then have Brad and he'll he'll take the next one. Uh, There's no question in my mind that we are in the still early stages of this rise. Uh, And I think this is a decade-long ride. It will slow naturally, but the the trend of e-commerce is at the beginning stages still. It's going to become really interesting as we start moving into the virtual world. Uh, That's going to change the dynamics also, how we shop um, in how we live our lives, and that's going to affect industrial. Uh, also, the, the full implementation of a 5G and, and you know other things which are going to make access, internet access faster and more available uh, is also going to continue to drive the business. So we are we are fascinatingly interestingly early in the game, and I have only great optimism. And I, and I do believe in some regard, although nothing's fully immune uh, from downturns, Industrial is really in a unique position where it can, it can probably withstand downturns better than others. Self-storage might fall into that category. Um, you know, but but it, even during the slowdown, people are still gonna buy online. And forgetting about COVID, that was a unique situation. I'm talking about other types of factors.
2: Well, and part of the problem, too, is that there was never enough industrial to begin with. And they were even before COVID and all the supply chain just with that just accelerated things by five years. People were already buying more and more online. That was already increasing. It just increased a lot faster. And so industrial takes a while to build, you know, get all the the things. So it it just behind everything slows down eventually and it will. But I think it's still a good 10 years, too.
0: All right. Question number three: What's one industry trend you think will continue, but you wish would go away?
1: Brad, you want to take this first? <laughs> no, thank you, though. Um, uh... <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. As an investor, one of the things that I know is going to continue is that the availability of data uh, and the transparency that's that's kind of permeating the investment business. Is something which I would go, I wish would go away, but unfortunately, it's going to continue. So what that means is, as more more information becomes available, uh, the ability to buy situations with where there may be some areas that others don't see, um, and and that's where you used to make money. So in the olden days, you might be able to buy a building where you knew next door that the owner of that building actually filed what's called a tax certiorari and got a return of of, of real estate taxes. Uh, so you know you're buying the same property next door, and you say, "Oh my God! When I buy this, I can go in and do the same thing he did." So you might be able to pick up some extra dollars now. Today, that information's known, so the brokers are going to advertise that on in, you know in their data room when they're selling this building, saying, "Hey, by the way, there's an extra X dollars over here." So that gets that's in the price now, right? So data is bad. And, um, and unfortunately for us, it's only going to get worse. So that's why and when, I, when I, and I talk about this, I'm a guest lecturer at Columbia Business School, and I talk about the future of real estate. What I tell the class is don't think you can't focus strictly on what's apparent today. The way to make money in, in, in real estate is going to be looking towards the future and understanding kind of try to be a little bit ahead of everyone else. That might be, again, going to an area others aren't looking at. Uh, and, and what Brad is doing is, is kind of, I think, is, is really ahead of the curve on how this real estate industry is going to take shape in the future. Uh, but it's going to be more and more competitive with more and more data.
2: And, and, and here's, a, here's a funny counterpoint. Uh, I'm on the exact opposite of the spectrum as Peter. I think we should have more and more data all the time. And we use it. So, for instance, right now, as we speak, uh, we're developing an AI model that can predict which warehouses are gonna have space in them now so that we can proactively go find space. Uh, And we can do the opposite of that too. We can predict where the demand's gonna be so we can market our space. Well, AI is one of those things where the more data you have, the better it gets. And we scramble for data all the time. So we're we're like, bring it on, please, the more the merrier. (laughs)
0: love it last one for for the future what's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of tech advances
2: brad go ahead well i don't i don't know i don't i don't know i i Um, i will
1: tell you one thing and i said it before labor labor will um human labor is going to fall away inside these warehouses and an alarming clip Um, And with unionization and other factors kind of coming into play, they're actually pushing these companies further into expediting, um, I think, automation. Uh, So I I think you're going to see a different world in five years from now.
2: Well, I think along those lines, though, too, is that people will find better and more efficient uses. I think it's just going to get more efficient use of space. Ultimately, you know, the big, the big thing in real estate is they're not making any more space. Right. And so, uh, you know, it is, it is what it is and, and making that more and more efficient and having more kind of broad uses for it. And even multiple uses, I think will, will be one of those things that's definitely coming.
0: Very cool. All right. We're going to shift to the last three uh, fellows. These are questions a little bit more about you. So the listeners get to learn more about you personally. Uh, first one, what are you reading?
2: Ben? Um, I'm trying to think of the last thing I read. I'll, I'll tell you what I do read every day and that's the art of war and uh, <laughs> which isn't like the, one of those, uh, you know, books of the moment, but it's it's just that classic strategy.
1: So, um, I'm, I'm actually reading, uh, a book called the year in tech 2022 it's by Harvard business review. Uh, it's a small book, so it's just something that, um, you know, I'm, I'll probably read, I'll finish it this weekend, but, um, you know, I'm interested in kind of hearing what I you know, about that stuff.
0: Got it. Question number two, who are you learning from?
1: I'm learning. I, you know, where I learn from. I right now I'm learning from the younger generation. So, the 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 guys in my firm who are in their 20s and 30s are the ones I'm listening to the most, uh, because they're the ones that they're the ones that are really tapped into this move from analog to digital. Uh, And so, I mean, there's always even at my age, you know, there's there's mentors who are let's say my age or older, and you know, and surely those are people you want to listen to. You know, like if. Warren Buffett speaks. You kind of want to pay attention, but the real knowledge, interestingly enough, is I think is is the generation that's dealing with the change that's ahead. Uh, Even though they don't have the experience, they have the experience in technology, Uh, and so uh, that's that's where I that's my mentors.
2: And I would say something similar in the sense that I don't have any one specific person, but what I try to do is to read broadly and to look for the trends. And to see what's happening, especially with those huge generations coming up, the generation Zs and things like that, to do this massive demographic bubble and, and watching what they're doing and how they're doing it and, and how they view their problems. The, the problems aren't really significantly different. They're just different enough that they have a different viewpoint. I mean, you know, they're digital natives from ground zero, you know, and so they, they think in terms of that. I mean, I have grandkids who can use an iPhone better than you. You know, it's so <laughs> like you, you watch that and and you see it and and then you look from that and and the, and then the the broader technology just trends. You know, because technology is one of those things that is changing everything all the time and getting and that's just accelerating. Whether it's blockchain, you know, or any type of cryptocurrency, all those things are are dramatically reshaping the way we're going to live in five years from now.
0: I'll save the questions about crypto for the for the next episode that we do we'll we'll
1: right. <laughs> i'll I'll <laughs> get all your thoughts there
0: <laughs> uh last one here on the final three what inspires you
1: uh for me it's learning uh, one
2: for, for me you know I mean I love to learn and I've been a lifelong learner, but what inspires me is watching people who've overcome things and rocked it regardless of whatever obstacles were in their way they just basically said i'm going to do it anyway and they found a way that's endlessly inspiring to me yeah that's cool i like
0: that i love that uh guys this has been a lot of fun uh as i predicted i am now going to log off i'm going to loop net and i'm going to go find me a deal
1: <laughs> call brad because you know he might take some space No, I'm just kidding here.
0: Uh, But hey, this has been a lot of fun, though. I really appreciate. Um, And before we close out, though, I want to give our listeners an opportunity. If they want to connect with you, find out more about your company, your investments, where should they go and do that? Uh, Brad, you first, and then Peter.
2: I mean, the very easiest way is to uh, reach me by email, brad at junker.com.
1: For us, I think just just go to my website, whartonequity.com. I have a V card under my um, listing there, uh, but they can get also a sense of the company as well.
0: Cool, and then of course in the show notes, we'll have links to uh, both of you guys' companies uh, and LinkedIn's and so people can find you there as well. But thank you guys for your time uh, and for sharing. And I feel like there's so much more that we could dig into. uh, Perhaps later we'll have to come back and see which of the predictions are coming true uh, and what the next trends are following from there. But uh, until next time.
1: Good luck with your move. Appreciate that. All right, guys. Thanks.
0: Well, thanks for listening to the Tech Nest podcast. You can always get future episodes delivered to you directly by subscribing to the podcast in your favorite app store. You can also join the newsletter. Head over to technest.io or finledger.com slash newsletters to get all future episodes, updates, and more sent to you right in your inbox. Last but not least, we appreciate your support. Please go ahead and give us a rating and review in your app store. This helps others discover the podcast and know that it's a great, worthy listen. We'll see you next week.